Tonight we are going to begin a briefer series than the series in 1 Peter because it's a briefer epistle. We are going to begin to look at 2 Peter. You may recall that some time ago we went through Peter's first epistle, those five chapters in an expository series on Sunday evening. And tonight we are going to begin and ultimately finish, the Lord willing, these three chapters that comprise Peter's second epistle. It's a great epistle from the standpoint of how relevant it is, and it has, has been pointed out many times, the Word of God is relevant for any time and anticipates uh, error. And part of Second Peter deals, particularly the second chapter, with error that was being propagated by false teachers. And Peter deals with those false teachers. In the third chapter, he deals with the coming of that final day. But here in the first chapter, there is the foundation of faith, the foundation upon which we are to build those wonderful Christian graces that we will study in a later lesson, the Lord willing, from this first chapter. But tonight, some introductory comments and briefly looking at the first four verses. We have the first two on the screen, and I thank uh, Brian Sorello for his technical ability. I left without my iPad tonight from home and and uh, didn't have um, the ability to put these uh, scriptures on the screen, and he got it together, and with the church's new iPad, was able to fix me up, and I appreciate uh, that effort and all that Brian does for us in that regard and in every regard as one of our very fine uh, deacons. He has uh, a great technological uh, mind, and we appreciate his uh, talents. But if you look at the first two verses, we'll get to those in just a moment, but simply by way of very brief introduction... We, of course, had introduced the first uh, epistle that was uh, written to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This epistle is not addressed specifically uh, to those uh, uh, in those areas, though it is assumed by many that it was written to those, uh, those same uh, Gentile Christians primarily, though there would be Jewish Christians among them uh, who would be addressed uh, here in this epistle. But here the address is simply to those in uh, verse 1 who have obtained like precious faith. And we'll talk more about that uh, in just a moment. But the epistle, was, we believe, was written shortly after the first epistle. The first epistle uh, probably written somewhere between 62 and 65 before the destruction of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so this epistle written uh, shortly thereafter. It has been termed the epistle of growth. And you know very well, if you've been here very long, that I certainly find the subject of growth to be one that's absolutely vital to all of us as children of God, that we are to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I mention that, I mention a verse that is found, the very last verse of this epistle, which we will study, the Lord willing, before we are through, Second Peter 3 and verse 18. And that verse provides for us the keys to this epistle, really. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. The epistle has as its theme growth. But the key word, the key word in this epistle would certainly have to be knowledge. The word in that form, that is the word knowledge itself, appears six times if I count correctly. 
and about a half dozen times in some other form, such as knowing or know, but knowledge is clearly the key word in this epistle. And we can see the relationship between the key word knowledge and the theme, if you will, of the epistle, which is growth, because without knowledge there can be no growth. And how tragic it is today that so many in this world, and tragically at times many in the church, deprive themselves of the thrill, yes, the absolute thrill of growing in the Lord, because they deprive themselves of the knowledge that produces that growth. We have to apply ourselves to growth by applying ourselves to the study of the Word of God that produces that growth. Knowledge is the key to growth, and knowledge is the key word in this epistle. The specific time, as we said, at which it was written uh, is not uh, absolutely certain, nor is the specific place from which it was written. We know that in verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Peter said, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, uh, my son. And uh, so that was written from Babylon, believed to be literally uh, uh, Babylon at that time in the New Testament period, that city, and not a figurative use of the word, though some have speculated that, that it is, but there are reasons, I believe, to, uh, to uh, deny that as being the case. The she who is in Babylon may very well have been uh, the wife of Peter. We know that Peter had a wife. He was an elder in the Lord's church. Uh, he uh, had to have a wife to be qualified uh, as an elder, uh, but he also had a wife. Uh, we know that. He had a mother-in-law, and someone who said to have a mother-in-law without a wife is something certainly you wouldn't want to uh, uh, be involved in. I'm just kidding, mothers-in-law, of course. Uh, but he had a mother-in-law, he had a wife. And Paul on one occasion asked the question, do we not have the right to lead about a wife as Cephas, that is Peter? And speaking of that, it brings us to the name with which Peter begins this particular epistle, the second epistle. It is a little bit different than the way he began the first epistle. In the first epistle, it was simply Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here it is Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And so the greeting is just a little bit different, and he includes the Hebrew name uh, Simon, which was his Hebrew name. You remember that Peter was the name that the Lord gave to him. In uh, selecting him as one of the apostles, when you go back to John uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, the first thing that Andrew did after he found the Lord, and we don't know a lot about Andrew, but we do know, and it has often been said, look at the great work he did in first going and finding his brother, Peter, and bringing him to the Lord. And look at the work that was accomplished by the apostle Peter. So he first found his own brother, that's verse 41 of John chapter 1, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, this is verse 42 of John 1, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, Simon bar Jonah, you will see it elsewhere in scripture, bar meaning son of, so Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, but he says, you shall be called Cephas which is translated a stone. And Cephas is the Aramaic, uh, which was spoken, uh, the language that was spoken, the New Testament written in Koine Greek, but Aramaic was uh, the common speech of that day. And so Aramaic, Cephas, which is Peter in the Greek, meaning 
a stone. But it reminds us that Peter was just that, a stone. Uh, he was indeed a solid rock from the standpoint that while he wavered at times in uh, his early life in relationship with the Lord, in denying him three times, he confessed him later three times, he confessed his love for him, was told on that occasion, Peter, you will die for me. In so many words he said, you will die for me. Peter understood that, later alludes uh, uh, to it in terms of putting off this uh, tent that he talks about, as the Lord had told me that I would do. He knew that he would die for him, and yet when the Lord said, follow me, he did. And so he did become that solid rock. But he was not that bedrock. He was not that large foundation bedrock upon which Jesus promised to build his church. Remember Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock, what rock? Not Peter, though some tragically have uh, misinterpreted that and have said, yes, it was Peter upon which he built the church. No, indeed. Upon this rock, what rock? The confession that Peter had just made, that bedrock, not Peter the stone, but the bedrock foundation that constituted the confession that Peter had just made when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock, this great foundational truth, I will build my church and I will give to you, Peter, and to the other apostles for that matter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those keys being used on Pentecost Day, the terms of admission, to admit some 3,000 precious souls into the kingdom of heaven. Peter was a great apostle of Christ, but he was not the one upon whom the church was founded. Christ is the founder of the church. Christ is the only head of the church. And Peter, Peter here describes himself not as some great leader, though he does affirm to be an apostle, nothing wrong with that, but he adds in this greeting, bondservant, meaning literally a slave, an absolute slave, one, according to the meaning of the word, who gives up all rights, denies self completely, and completely submits himself to the one who is his master. In this case, the master is Jesus Christ, and every servant of Christ is to be just that kind of servant, a willing slave, not just Peter as an apostle. But if Peter as an apostle characterized himself as a willing slave who had given up all of self, where should we place ourselves in relation to the Christ? Certainly in that same position of complete submission, of sacrificing self for the Son of God. Simon Peter then, a bondservant, an apostle, a slave of Jesus Christ. Then he says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. To those who have obtained like precious faith. There are two opinions as to the faith that Peter refers to here. One opinion is that this is objective and not subjective, and therefore it is a reference to the faith, even though the faith is not, uh, is not specifically here. The, word, the article the is not there. But that nonetheless, it must refer to the system of faith or the gospel because of the word obtained. And the word obtained is a word that literally means to cast lots or to receive a gift. And so if that be the case, and it is, 
to those whose lot has been or who have been divinely given this gift of faith. Well, literally, faith is not a gift of God. Faith is something that we generate based upon the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Therefore, that leads to the conclusion on the part of many that this is the objective faith, that this is the the gospel, as uh, we studied it this morning in the class in Galatians, in chapter 1 and verse uh, 23 there, where it was said of the uh, apostle uh, Paul that he now preached the faith which he had formerly persecuted. The one who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, in other words, the gospel. And the conclusion on the part of many is that that's the same thing we're talking about here, even though the definite article is not there, based upon the meaning of the word obtain, which is to divinely appoint. Now, the other opinion is that this is subjective faith, but that it is not directly a gift from God in that faith is not given to us by God. We have to generate faith but that God does, in one sense, give us faith by giving us the word that produces that faith. And so indirectly, God gives us faith by giving us that which is the source of faith, that which produces faith. And so those are the two conclusions that are reached as to what faith is being referred to here. Well, the point is, we must have faith, subjective faith, we must manifest faith, and we must manifest that faith in the system of faith, the gospel. And so both uh, uh, precepts are, are true, uh, nonetheless. I would lean toward the objective use here based upon the meaning of the word uh, obtain, and that faith literally is not a, a gift. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us, with us perhaps meaning Jewish Christians, Christians of Jewish background as Peter was, writing here primarily to Gentiles, if these are the same people to whom he penned his first epistle, those congregations were made up primarily of Gentiles, and so they would have Jews in them, those of Jewish background, but saying, you of Gentile background, you now have obtained that like precious faith with us, those of Jewish background. Or perhaps he meant with us, meaning the apostles, or perhaps it was the editorial use of the word we. These are factors that are not going to affect our eternal salvation uh, in any shape, form, or fashion as to who the with us has reference to. But notice, like precious faith. Literally, the idea here is equally precious faith. And it should remind us of how precious, how precious our possession is if we are children of God this evening. We possess a gift that is precious beyond description. And do we view it as precious? Do we see it as something that is a treasure beyond all treasures combined? You know, it reminds me of what the Lord taught in that great 13th chapter of Matthew and those seven parables that I believe present a perfect picture of the kingdom of God. And in the midst of those parables, we have two about the hidden treasure and the goodly pearl, or the pearl of great price, as it is sometimes called. The man who found that treasure hidden in the field sold all that he had to possess the one treasure. 
The merchant who was seeking goodly pearls sold all the other pearls in order to possess that one precious pearl of great price. The kingdom, the church, the gospel. How precious is the church of Christ, the pre-denominational body of believers to you tonight? How precious, how precious is the faith? How precious is your faith in Christ? And are you growing in that faith? Well, knowledge is the key, as we will see as we continue our study of this epistle. But like or equally is the idea here, literally, equally precious faith. And it is a reminder that those of Jewish background, those who were Gentiles, that all men everywhere can become partakers equally of the most precious possession that anyone could ever hold. And it's not a material possession, but a spiritual possession. And how is it done? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the context here? It seems likely to me that because he's talked about all men, Jewish and Gentile background, partaking equally of the precious faith that the righteousness of God is that justice of God that makes possible the salvation of all mankind equally, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. It's reminiscent of what Peter perceived at the household of Cornelius when he said, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, that he's no respecter of persons, as the King James says. But in every nation, every nation, Jew and Gentile, everywhere, every man, every woman of accountable age can come into the kingdom of God, has access to the gospel. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. That's the righteousness of God, I think, in this context, though certainly God is righteous in all his ways. And the righteousness of God is sometimes depicted as the plan by which man becomes righteous. In the Roman epistle, it is used in that way. The righteousness of God, as Paul talked about his fellow Jews who had rejected the righteousness of God and had sought to establish their own righteousness. In that context, I believe the righteousness of God has reference to the plan by which man is made righteous by God. Here, the context makes more likely indicate the justice of God and Jesus Christ in making the gospel of Christ available to all men everywhere, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their economic background, regardless of their social standing. Truly, as we often sing, the gospel is for all. And then notice, grace and peace. Grace and peace, he says, be multiplied to you, notice this, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace is favor, obviously. We sometimes add the word unmerited and certainly rightfully so because there's no way to earn the grace of God. But that's a far cry from saying that we should not do anything 
to increase in favor with God. Jesus himself grew in favor with God in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man as a young child that is said of him. We're to grow. We're to grow. Obviously, Christ was a perfect individual, but he grew and matured. Though sinless, he grew in that wonderful spiritual growth that is to be characteristic of all of us. We're to grow in grace. That's a command. Remember 2 Peter 3.18, the last verse of this epistle? But grow in grace. That is, grow in favor with God. How do we grow in favor with God? How does our peace, how does the peace that surpasses all understanding become more precious to us? How does it become more comforting to us every day that we live? Through knowledge, the knowledge of God. In fact, Paul is asserting here that favor with God and peace with God will be not just added, but multiplied, multiplied in the knowledge of God and our, of Jesus our Lord. Now, the word knowledge here is not the word gnosis, transliterated G-N-O-S-I-S, but it has a little epi in the front of it, epinosis, which means full Knowledge, knowledge that we strive to gain more and more of, never reaching full, uh, full knowledge necessarily, but striving for that greater knowledge, great knowledge upon knowledge, in other words. That is the goal that every child of God should set for himself in terms of the attainment of knowledge. If that is the case, that we are to strive to have the fullest possible knowledge of God and Christ, how can we settle... How can we settle for anything that doesn't even approximate that kind of effort in terms of Bible study? How can we be satisfied? And better question, how can God be satisfied and pleased with us? And how can we attain the kind of growth that Peter is enjoying upon us here, the grace and the peace that can be multiplied? It's there. It is there at your fingertips. In other words, he's saying, it will be multiplied, but not without the knowledge of God and Christ. Therefore, being a daily Bible reader is not likely to produce the kind of multiplication process that Peter describes here. But being a daily Bible student will. And not only that, to grow in that grace and to have that Increasing peace, the greater love, the joy, all of those beautiful characteristics that, that he will talk about a little bit later on in this first chapter to which we, are, uh, which we are to add to our faith as the foundation of our Christian existence. We'll grow in all of those, all of those things. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then, in verses 3 and 4, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge, there's our word knowledge again, the key word in the epistle, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. This is one of the passages that is cited, and rightfully so, along with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that tells us that we have been given all that we need to supply us with every spiritual need that we could possibly, possibly need. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16. And here, in 17, here we have in this passage, 2 Peter 1, 3, a parallel passage in effect that says, His divine power has given to us A-L-L, all things that pertain to what? Life, what kind of life? Physical life? No. Spiritual life, yes. And the godliness, the means that we need to be able to attain that spiritual life and to ultimately have eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and the faithful of all the ages, all of that is given to us through the knowledge of Him who called us. And we talked about that calling this morning, didn't we? Who called us through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, but He called us by glory and virtue, the glory of God. From His glory, His virtue, His goodness, He has given us, because of His goodness, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And not only that, but verse 4, by which have been given us exceedingly great and precious promises. The glory and virtue of God have given us exceedingly great. Think about that. Not just great, but exceedingly great. Not just exceedingly great, but exceedingly great and precious promises. And oh, how much time could we spend enumerating those promises? How about the promise of forgiveness of sins? Having your sins blotted out. Never to be remembered again by the God of heaven. How about his favor and grace bestowed continually upon you. How about the peace that surpasses all, all understanding? How about the joy of the child of God who can rejoice in the Lord always? The joy that is unspeakable. Oh, yes. So many precious, precious, exceedingly great promises that through these promises, and our acceptance of His will and compliance with His will, we become what? Partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Transformed from those who've been corrupted by this world to those who are becoming more Christ-like, hopefully, every day that we live. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 18, and hear what the same, or what the other writer Paul, the other, one of the other apostles says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a transformation process going on in the life of every faithful child of God who's applying himself or herself to the growth which Peter enjoins upon us here. And that's a transformation from glory to greater glory and ultimately to the greatest glory that we shall ever behold as we see him as he is and behold him face to face. Partakers of the divine nature, what a wonderful privilege but it belongs only to those who have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
But if we are partakers of the divine nature, having obeyed the gospel of Christ, Peter affirms that that's exactly what we have done. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It reminds us of John's admonition in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the, world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its lust, but he who does the will of God abides forever. That's the promise. That's one of those exceedingly great and precious promises. You do the will of the Lord, and you abide forever. Have you escaped? Have you escaped the world and its lust? You have not if you have not been obedient to the gospel of Christ. And tonight as we close, we plead with you to do just that. To become a child of God by belief that Jesus is the Christ. Repentance of your sin, confession of his sweet name as the Christ, and then burial and baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has once escaped the corruption of the world through lust, but has succumbed to that lust in some way and has gone back into the world in a way that precipitates the need to confess publicly your sin, we plead with you to do that. And let us pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you and will forgive and will fulfill one of those precious promises as he does. He'll forget all the sin that is against you. Will you come as we stand to sing?